If you would, you can open your Bibles to page one. We're going to be in Genesis chapter one together, the beginning of the Bible. We're starting a new series this morning uh, through the storyline of the Bible. And we're going to take several weeks here. I think one of the most helpful things we can do as Christians is to know the story and spend regular time immersing ourselves in the story of the Bible so that we don't just see it as diverse parts, but we see it also as a unified, coherent narrative. And it's the true story of the world. So I think some of you um, are using Unfolding Grace as a reading plan through this series. I encourage you to consider doing that. So Unfolding Grace has 40 scripture readings that take us through key sections of the Bible so that as we read through them, we get to grasp the whole of the Bible in 40 readings. And so you can read one of those, those each day. And by the time we're done with the series, you will have also through your own Bible reading immersed yourself in the story of the Bible. We have some copies of those available at the resource corner. Well, I want to give you uh, five reasons why we're doing this series together uh, before we jump in. So first of all, this helps us understand what the Bible actually is. And it is a unified story. It helps us know the big picture. Sometimes we can approach the Bible as merely a rule book or as you know, tips for living, insights for living, life lessons, or maybe for some of us who are more historically oriented, oriented, we see this as ancient historical texts that are filled with curiosities. But the Bible, uh, its point is seen in its big story and what it reveals about God. So if you know the big story, you can also open up anywhere in the Bible and know where you are in the whole thing. So knowing the whole story helps us even understand all the parts and where they fit. Second, this helps us know God. This is ultimately a story of grace, and the reason it's a story of grace is because this is who God is. This is what He's like. He's a God of grace. God is the author of this story, and through His story, we learn who He is and what He's actually like. We see His power at work in history. We see his wisdom and creativity in planning redemption as he has. We see his grace in saving rebels like us. And so this story shows us that we are worse than we may have known, but we are also way more loved than we may feel any given day. Third, this helps us know the real Jesus. Some people think that once Jesus came, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. But actually, if you want to know who Jesus really is, you need the Old Testament. Jesus himself said the Old Testament was pervasively about him. Um, The Old Testament prepares the world to understand who Jesus is when he came. So many misconceptions about who Jesus is comes from cutting him off from the Old Testament story and the expectations and promises that we're preparing for the world to even understand who he is. So if you want to know who Jesus is, we need to see him clothed with the images and promises of the Old Testament. So one of the best things you can do is know the Old Testament. In fact, if you say, I know the New Testament, but not really the Old, you actually don't really know the New Testament that well. Um, because it's one story. It's like saying, I really know the last two chapters of this novel. I didn't really read what came before, but I've mastered these last two. And anyone who knows the story well will say, I don't think you actually do, right? Fourth, this is how we come to learn our identity and purpose. It's how we learn most deeply who we are and why we're here. You are not an accident of history. 
Your life is more meaningful than you may know. You have a purpose in the story of God's world that He's unfolding in history. You matter to God, and you find your reason for being on the pages of Scripture by seeing your place in this story. We're characters in a story. Fifth, knowing the story gives us a calming hope. This world is a distressing place to live at this point in the story, at least. One news event after another unsettles us. But if you know where the story's going, if you know where history's heading, then you know you'll be okay as you find yourself safe in Jesus because the arc of history is moving toward the coming of Jesus and the renewal of all things. I gave my sons each a copy of Unfolding Grace and just wanted to write something on the front cover. And as I took my pen to write, I thought, what do I want them to read in 30 years or longer when I may be gone? What, what do I want them to think about when they open uh, the Bible or this book of unfolding grace? So I wrote this, no matter how dark or sad your life gets, and we all know it can get way darker or sadder than we might think no matter how dark or sad your life gets, you are part of this story, right? This story. And it's heading to the joy of a new creation with God and his people. You can trust him. So that's what we need, this deep trust in the God who is moving history to this beautiful conclusion. So let's jump into the story of God's unfolding grace. We'll begin at the beginning with the first three chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 3 is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible. It's foundational for understanding who we are and why we're here. It's foundational for understanding what's wrong with the world and how God will fix it. It helps us understand the deepest reasons why Jesus came. And so with that, I hope you don't have lunch plans. Just kidding. Uh, we're just going to have to make a few observations here in the time we have, but I encourage you to let Genesis 1 through 3 be a companion uh, through the rest of your life as you read the Bible. So what we'll do is we'll read in Genesis 1, beginning in verses, verse 26 to the beginning of chapter 2, and then we'll skip ahead to chapter 3, so parts of 1 and 3. So Genesis 1, 26, after God begins creating the world, he says this, Then God said, Let us make man... In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the beautiful, good creation. And then we move to chapter 3 and verse 8. So Adam and Eve had now rejected the Lord. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam and he said, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, or commanded that you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the garden or the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, we'll walk through this in four parts. We'll see God's spreading goodness, humanity's royal purpose, sin's devastating effects, and the Bible's master promise. So first, God's spreading goodness. This phrase, God's spreading goodness, comes from Richard Sibbs. He was a Puritan pastor from the 1600s in England, and he said that God's goodness is a spreading goodness. I love that image. His point is that God is good And he loves to share who he is. He's like a fountain that overflows with goodness. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. God is a triune God of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, always existing with effusive love within the Trinity. Happy fellowship. So when God created, and we read Genesis 1 here, we're not seeing God make up for some deficiency he added himself. God wasn't lonely and needed companionship. 
He didn't do this because he lacked anything. God was infinitely happy in his fellowship of the Trinity. So we see him then spreading his goodness, sharing the fullness of who he is. And that's what we see in this creation story. The first three days, God creates realms, the sky and the land and the sea. And then the next three days, he fills these realms with communal life, birds in the skies and fish in the seas and other animals on the land. And then the seventh day, we read that he rested. And this doesn't mean that he worked so hard that he was tired and had to take a break on the seventh day. This is more the rest of satisfaction. So like some of you who love to build things or paint, you know that feeling when it's done and you step back. There's a sense of restful satisfaction and completion in your work. This opening chapter teaches us a lot about who God is. We read that He's the creator of everything. If you look back at verse 1, the very opening phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God was there and He created everything. This is one of the most radical statements in the whole Bible. I know some of you children and uh, youth are learning the New City Catechism. We've done this with our family in parts, and many of the middle schoolers are learning this right now. So the second question is, what is God? Does anyone here know the answer to that question? What is God? Yes, shout it out. Yes. God is the creator of everyone and everything. Well done. That's Genesis. God made us, and He made everything, and so He's the creator, we're the creatures. We also learn about God's power. He speaks, and His creation responds. Let there be light, and there was light. Effortless. He speaks, and it's done. He's portrayed as this king with authority, speaking, and by the authority and power of His word, creation obeys. We learn about his wisdom and creativity, right? He created pandas and polar bears and smallmouth bass and lobsters and lemurs and parrots, right? All of our favorite animals, right? He created Mars and the stars and black holes. He created all the trees and the depths of the ocean and sunsets. And even the things that aren't as natural but the things we make, he created the world with all of this potentiality and commissioned us to use these resources. So, you know, when you play with Legos, kids, that's a gift of the Lord, creating a world with that kind of potentiality and you having creativity and people working to build Legos for your joy. All of the good gifts we, we experience in the world, this is an outflow of God because God has a spreading goodness. And think about God's kindness here. He didn't have to do it this way. He could have, you know, done what seems to be, I remember one of the colleges I attended, there was a lot of architecture was built in the 70s, and it's just bland concrete boxes. Um, he could have just created the world this way, just a concrete slab, some concrete boxes, and put us there. Uh, but he created this wonder world, and he didn't have to, all the variety I remember reading something John Calvin said one time, and he said something like, given apples, why pears? God must want to delight us. Right? That's the conclusion. Um, 
He gave us strawberries and fresh air and blue skies and beautiful trees. So this teaches about God. It teaches us also about creation itself. This shows us that our world is a wonder world. All the marvels of the world that are here to explore, the mountains, the beaches, the forests, the deep sea, the galaxies, it's a wonderland. And this world was created good. That phrase is repeated numerous times through this chapter, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then verse 31 of chapter 1, you can see it. Everything's made, and then finally, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. There's two common views of viewing, or common ways of viewing creation that are er erroneous. One is that creation's bad, and the other is that it's God, right? Or at least we treat it that way. Treating it like it's bad, like the physicality is bad. That is, if the goal of salvation is to, to get us out of this place, we need to escape this physical world. We need to detach from the desires of the physical world. The other error would be to treat it as God. And to replace God with the wonders of this world. And to value this above the giver and the creator. But we don't reject it as bad, nor do we worship it as God. We receive it as a gift. And we let that reception roll up into praise to the one who gave it. So a couple other implications of seeing creation as good. This means that the natural world matters. God cares about the natural world. It's a good creation. You know, even in this chapter, God blesses the animal life, just as he blesses human life. Look at verse 22. He creates all the fish for the sea and the birds for the air. And then in verse 22, it says, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. So God blesses these creatures. And if he does, then we don't have a right to mistreat them. God created this world and he honors the creatures. Um, and so we are called to then care for creation. Of course, there's all sorts of ways in which some people go um, inordinately to prioritize creation over human life, but we're to care for creation. Creation care should be a Christian-motivated reality. And this means that God also has a good purpose for the created world. The physical and the spiritual were never meant to be these things completely separated from one another. Many philosophies and religions focus on the spiritual life alone. Others focus on just the material life. In the material world, as if that's all that's there or all that matters. But here we see heaven and earth merged. God dwelling with humanity. God making the world as an expression of his power and his wisdom and his goodness. And then when we get to the end of the story of the Bible and of the world, we'll see that God has a plan for the world, to, and it's to renew creation. He isn't going to crumple up creation and throw it into a cosmic waste bin so that we can float around as spirits. No, the, the goal of history and the story is for us to move along to a day when the, the world is remade and it's back to Eden, but better. The beautiful, physical world. The hope is not escape from this world, but resurrection to live on a resurrected planet. So that's the beginning of the true story of the world. This is the history's shire and it shows us God's spreading goodness. Now, second, humanity's royal purpose. There's two questions that every worldview seeks to answer about human beings. Who are we and why are we here? And I'm convinced the Bible gives the most satisfying answers to those questions. So who are we? Well, according to what we just read, we are human beings 
created in God's image. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The let us, by the way, I take to be a subtle reference to the plurality of God. He's a triune God, as we learn later in Scripture. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created everything else as an expression of his goodness. And then when he creates humanity, he makes them alone, specially in his image. He gives us this special honor. This is the foundation for uh, what we rightly hold as human dignity. It's in fact where the West's emphasis on universal human rights comes from. Uh, Many people today just think universal human rights are self-evident, right? Isn't it obvious? But when you look at history, actually, this was not so self-evident to ancient cultures and still to many cultures today that repeatedly violate what other cultures view as universal human rights. And if they seem self-evident to you, it's because you've grown up in a society that has a history influenced and shaped by the Bible, and in particular, verse 26 here. So here's an example. Do you know who the first person, as far as I understand this, the first person is that we have on record saying that slavery is wrong? Because, in, and he said it's wrong because of the value of humans in particular. So the first person on record saying it's wrong because of the value of humans. Basically, every ancient culture accepted some form of slavery, but then in 370, we have this Christian leader, Gregory of Nyssa, saying that slavery is wrong because humans are made in God's image, right? Right from this verse here. So this idea then took further root in the Middle Ages, and they developed this idea of inalienable human rights and the Western ideal of universal human dignity was rooted historically in biblical and Christian thinking, and in particular, this idea of being made in God's image. So, you know, it's just striking that it's very common today for Christianity to be viewed as this kind of very narrow set of beliefs. But the truth is that so much of what modern people love and value, and rightfully so, like human dignity and universal human rights, that actually came from the influence of this verse. In history. So, who are we? We are creatures blessed by God, made in His image. Every one of you, every person you'll ever meet, made in God's image, has this noble sense of dignity. Any children in any of the wombs in this room or across the globe right now, any person in a nursing home, right now, or across town, any human being who has any disability, all of us made in God's image with dignity. And this is, you know, we matter to God, and this is why we should matter to one another. So that's who we are. What about that other question? Why are we here? We can see a number of purposes here, but here's two of the primary ones. First, we are here to reflect God's rulership in the world. So God creates like a king, and then he rules the world through his people. Our purpose is to reflect God's good kingship by ruling the world. Now, this is wrapped up into our, in our identity of being made in God's image. So think of the word image. What does that bring to mind? Um, might bring to mind like a, a mirror, but the idea of image, it's, it's a reflection or representation of something else, right? 
So we are made in God's image to reflect Him to the world, to represent His kingship and His goodness into the world. We're made to reflect His character, and in particular, He's given us a primary way to reflect Him in the world. And it's right here in verse 28. You can read it with me. It says, and God blessed them. So He he makes humanity in His image, and then we, we ask the question, well, what does this mean? What does this look like? Verse 28, and He blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, So multiply this image in the world and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So our purpose then from this is to reflect God by spreading his glory, multiplying image reflectors of God who reflect God by ruling the world in the way that God rules. In the ancient Near East, kings would make images of themselves and and put them around their realm as a way of saying, this represents me, this is my territory, you're remembering my authority over this place. So God has filled the world with his image as a way of saying, this is my world and these are my people who reflect my glory in this world. So you were created to be a king or queen of creation. And the other purpose we see here is to worship and serve God in the world. Uh, We worship Him and we serve Him. In Genesis 1 and 2, it describes the whole world uh, like a temple. In fact, Israel's tabernacle and temple later in the Bible were all along intended to be symbolic models of Eden. And everything about them, every aspect is this symbolic echo of Eden. Um, In the beginning, they're, they're... miniature pictures of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And so the creation here in Genesis 1 and 2 is like a temple, and humanity is placed in the world to be like priests who worship God. We see this in the purpose in chapter 215. We didn't read this earlier, but you can read it now. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. It's actually the language there is placed him at rest in the garden. It's language used for how God put the temple furnishings in the tabernacle. So we're placed at rest in this temple in Eden to work it and keep it. And those words for work and keep, um, they can be translated a number of different ways, something like serve and guard or worship and obey. And the striking feature here is that um, every time those two words are used together like this elsewhere in the Bible, they're referring to the role of priests, serving and guarding in the temple, worshiping God and keeping his word. So the, the point is that humanity's purpose is to be like priests in the world, worshiping God and serving Him in all of life. That doesn't mean that Adam was to stop and sing praise songs from time to time, though that could have been fine. Worship is an all-of-life experience. It's, It's bringing everything we do to the Lord as an act of worship. So those are our two purposes. We're created like kings and priests, royalty and as priests to rule and worship in all of life. So kids, You are made in God's image, and you have a purpose in the world, and you matter to Him. Uh, You have a purpose in the world to take care of the world and to take care of what has been entrusted to you, and God is pleased as you do that and as you do it as He would, just like God created the world with creativity. You show creativity in the things that you make, and you show what God is like to the world. And as you explore the world and take care of animals rather than stomping them with anger. Uh, You reflect God's care for His creation in this world. 
And adults, your vocation is the primary way right now in, in which you worship and serve God in all of life. You know, right here in Genesis 1 and 2, if you think about it, imagine if sin never entered the world. What would Adam and Eve and their multiplying generations be doing? Well, even right here, we see what they'd start doing. Um, They'd multiply, and the world would be filled with exploration, be filled with science, with farming, with technology, with family life, with good work. Adam here is the first leader of people, the first farmer of the ground, the first explorer of the wild, the first scientist who's naming creatures here, the first poet in chapter 2 as he spontaneously spoke a love poem to his new wife. I can keep going here. The, The point is that all the wonderful vocations we have come from the goodness of creation here. And that's part of God's good design and purpose for us. And so we should... Uh, recognize that this is our purpose, and we should just think about this as we hear alternative purposes presented to us in our life, either in our own minds or in our culture, right? So a very common way of thinking about purpose today for people is what some call expressive individualism, this idea that we look inside of ourselves to, to discern who our true and authentic self is or define for ourselves who we are, and then we express that to the world. And our purpose is to do that. Find out who you most deeply are, uniquely, and then express that outward. And we should ask ourselves of any purpose we see, when someone's fulfilling that purpose, how's it going for them? Does that actually fit with the way that God has created the world? And it's not always working well. That purpose in particular puts an incredible amount of pressure on us to try to define ourselves for our own purpose. And then it roots our feelings, it roots ourselves, our sense of identity in our feelings and in our sense of self, which often changes over time and isn't stable. We're also learning that our culture values this kind of self-expression, but we're finding out there's a narrow set of ways that are actually, of expressing yourself that are actually approved. Um, expressing yourself in certain ways will get you canceled very quickly in our culture as well. And so we're seeing this unravel even before us. And so God gives us this identity and this purpose as royal kings and queens, caring for creation, serving him in all of life. It's stable, it's noble, it's dignifying. All right, we'll have to move more briefly here. Third, sin's devastating effect. This is Genesis 3. Adam and Eve uh, failed in their purpose. So Satan came in in the form of a serpent, and Satan, this fallen angel, and he tempts Adam and Eve to distrust God and to rebel against him, and it worked. We don't have time to go through the whole story, but Satan cast doubt on God's goodness, cast doubt on God's truthfulness, cast doubt on God's word, led them to distrust him and think that God was lying to them, holding out on them, being a cosmic killjoy. So rather than viewing God as the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty, and as a generous giver who gives them this noble purpose, they viewed him as stingy, hiding things from them, holding out on them, selfishly protecting his own interests, and that's why they ate the fruit. It wasn't just a random act of like, you know, I'm hungry, there's some fruit close by. They ate the fruit because they had already distrusted God and rejected him in their deepest heart. And as a result, the peace and harmony of creation was shattered. Their relationship with God was broken. 
When he comes to walk with them in friendship, as it seems like he always did, they hid from him. Their relationship with one another is broken. They start hiding from one another, um, worried about feeling shame from one another, start blame shifting when God brings up the problem in front of them. Even their, the harmony with the created world is broken because now the, the ground is cursed and this is where all the devastating consequences of sin enter into our world. The beginning of sin and death and cancer and COVID and bullies and disabilities and mental disorders. We live with pain now and the need for quadruple bypass surgeries and none of that would have been here before Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. The word for that is exile. They're taken out of God's presence, away from the garden. They've lost paradise. And now all of humanity, all of us are born east of Eden, outside of Eden, in spiritual darkness, out of a relationship with God. Nobody comes into this world loving God. Um, We come into this world needing to be healed in darkness and we need light. So let's move forth to look at the, ma- the Bible's master promise. So God speaks, he speaks to the serpent, and as he promises his judgment over the serpent, this gives hope to the world. So look at Genesis 3.15. This is the Bible's master promise. It's what some call the first proclamation of the gospel. It's the promise that gets unfolded and expanded across the pages of the Bible. It's the seed that grows into a tree. So let's read it together. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Right? So the offspring of Eve will bruise your head, saying to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So God's promising that there's going to be conflict between the serpent and the descendants of Eve. And we see this played out through the Bible's story as many are hostile to God and his people and his promises and they're viewed as these descendants of the serpent and others are brought into faith in God and then brought into conflict. But one day, a descendant will come from Eve's line to crush Satan. And this is a signal that we find later unfolded that God is going to reverse all the consequences of sin here. He's going to have Satan conquered and sin conquered and death conquered. He's going to restore what sin brought into the world. He's going to bring us back into the garden, bring us, bring us back into Eden, bring us, bring us back into spiritual wholeness to restore our purpose to ruling and worshiping in all of life. And so as this promise unfolds in the Old Testament, it picks up all these beautiful ancient longings that, that come into a fulfillment in one man, God himself, God the Son, becoming a man, coming into this world, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the true descendant of the woman Eve who's come to conquer Satan and sin and death. And he did that when he came the first time and he'll finish the job in a more complete way when he comes again. And so this helps us understand then what Jesus came into the world to do, doesn't it? If you think of the Bible as just starting in Genesis 3 and ending at the cross, you'd see that sin is a problem and Jesus came to bring forgiveness. But when we zoom out a bit and see that it starts in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and ends in a new creation to come, we see that Jesus came to bring forgiveness so that we can be restored to God, have transformed hearts, 
be, be able to treat one another with dignity and respect again, and ultimately to bring this world back into an Eden-like flourishing, to get us back to Eden, but better. So the world is going to a place that's the fruit of redemption, the fruit of what Jesus purchased for us, and that's Eden 2.0. Um, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, but better. So that's the beginning of the story. What do we do from here? What should we just leave here thinking and feeling? Probably a number of things. Uh, here's just a couple encouragements. First, this shows us that the Bible is the true story of God's unfolding grace. The Bible is not just a book of self-help tips. It's not just kind of pull off the shelf when you're having a hard, hard day and need some advice. It's a story of God's grace for sinners and sufferers, and it's about history and the whole world. Second, we find our identity and purpose in this story. You were created to be a character in a plot line, and so no character in any plot line would be able to understand their purpose apart from the story, right? You've got to ask the author for the script, And so we're doing that in embracing the Bible. We're seeing the script that we're a part of. And gratefully to the Lord, this is a story that gives us great dignity and purpose and is a story of God's grace. And then finally, we see that God's plan is for for the renewal of a relationship with Him in a beautiful creation. History is moving toward the day when the intrusion that sin has been uh, will be removed Uh, Sin is an intruder, and it disrupts the harmony of the world, and Jesus came to undo that. And so, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this, Certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. We're soaked with this sense that we're outside of Eden and we're longing to get back. And Jesus came to bring us back. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy to us. We thank you for your commitment to our good. We're grateful that you Uh, Jesus, you died and rose for our sins and for our salvation, and we pray that you would lead us to trust you more deeply. Amen.